0: Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. We've often discussed equality issues in big law, like the struggles for more gender parity or increased diversity. But one area that's often overlooked is the struggle for inclusion if you are an attorney with a disability. So we'll spend the entire show focusing on just that. We'll be joined by senior reporter Brandon Lowry, who'll let us know the state of play for disabled attorneys in big law. And then senior reporter Aaron Coe will stop by the show to highlight the specific challenges facing lawyers with mental health issues. But first, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, we've got a pretty packed show today, but there's some big news going on I think we probably want to talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I we we had to alter the production schedule a little bit. We're, we're recording on Wednesday instead of Thursday, so we could sort of more ably lay out all the great reporting that that our team has done on this, uh, on this issue um, about attorneys with disabilities. But we would be remiss if we did not talk about... The trial of the quarter century or something that's (laughs) going on just outside D.C. uh, We're, of course, referring to, we haven't talked about it yet, the Paul Manafort uh, trial. This is the first case to go to trial that sprung out of the Mueller probe, which is investigating uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election.
0: Yeah, my husband and I were talking about this and how much we wish it was like... carried on like court TV or whatever, because it has that same feeling of the OJ Simpson trial. Like the thing that the whole nation's just was watching. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: it, it kind of is. And it isn't because I mean, since, and and we should be clear. Uh, and and for reasons that I will explain very soon, by the time you listen to this, there may be a verdict and we, and we just may not be able to talk about it in full with you until next week's episode. Um, but it's important to kind of recenter exactly what's at issue here. Cause even though, uh, Manafort was indicted, uh, and taken into custody, because of what the Mueller probe uncovered, uh, and he is, of course, uh, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, what he's on trial for actually has nothing to do, or not much to do with um, the work he did on the campaign, or really anything even to do with the Russian government. Um, He is basically on trial now uh, in Virginia for basically what amounts to tax evasion, uh, concealing uh, you know, the, the source of, like, funds that he received for his lobbying work and, um, like, bank fraud and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's what's going on, and it's um, him and his former business associate is a guy named Rick Gates, who we've talked about on the show, and Gates is actually flipped, and he is the sort of star witness for the prosecution, and he was at the center of a lot of the prosecution's arguments, um, which is basically, I mean, he was saying, oh, yeah, what, what Paul Manafort would do is he'd get all this money from these foreign governments or foreign lobbying groups or whatever right. it is, and he would then conceal it uh, through the use of shell companies.
0: And some other fun things.
1: And some other things. Uh, it came to this light. This is my favorite part. It came to light during uh, uh, during the uh, prosecution's uh, half of the case that he had purchased uh, a very expensive, I think it was like a $15,000 ostrich coat. Man, we're Wait, talking we $32,000 couches <laughs> last week.
0: This yeah. time we're talking ostrich you know, we need to take coats. a beat right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need to take a beat right here to talk about. Did you guys see the pictures of these? Because yeah, that's the yeah. best for me. Is it, yeah, uh, un-
1: unfortunately, this an audio. medium. it's it, it's one of the gaudier coats. If
0: any of the listeners haven't, just you need to Google it because it's it, there were it, there was the ostrich coat, but there were several others too where you just it, well, you know, the ostrich coat. Looked, it almost looked like um like a sad gangster kind of vibe. Well, the thing that's really- Very flashy and weird. The
1: thing that's really funny about it is that it's like he he purchased these expensive, he is alleged to have purchased (laughs) these like expensive things with his, quote, dirty money Uh and then try to sell them off later to clean the money. That's how money laundering works, which is very funny to picture him acquiring- this coat, and then trying to sell it to
2: somebody right, else. Right. I think <laughs> right. I'd buy
1: some less, like and you
2: know, I, I mean,
0: don't
1: know, less ostentatious stuff. And you know, I mean, we buy like a 2010 Camry. You know, who has
0: put something on Poshmark to resell it later? I mean, there's options here.
1: We've all seen Pawn Stars. We know you're going to take a loss on <laughs> the ostrich code, but anyway, okay. So that's all the stuff um, that kind of came out uh, on the prosecution side. The other thing was that when the defense was cross-examining Gates, uh-huh. a lot of this stuff turned into like a referendum on his personal life. And this is where yeah. it got really ugly and kind of and just frankly strained. The whole thing is weird. Um but they they uncovered not one but at least 5 purported uh uh like sort of mar- extramarital affairs that Rick Gates had wow. um in an attempt to sort of discredit him as the star government witness. Sure, he said right. actually It is Mr. Gates who is running the ostrich coat racket uh, money laundering uh, extravaganza. Um, So anyway, those were sort of the broad strokes of uh, the prosecution. But so the prosecution rested. Where are we now? Uh, Well, it's funny you should ask because (laughs) the reason this moved so quickly and we were caught a little off guard in terms of when uh, the verdict might come down is because the... Uh, prosecution rested earlier this week and then it was uh, Manafort's uh, team's turn to go, the, the, the defense and instead they decided not to do anything Your Honor, we have nothing to add our it, client is kind of a bad guy. did some <laughs> light treason and uh let's let's just do this thing. So yeah, the the defense rested entirely. They didn't yep. they did not call one witness or even present any evidence or do a case as it as it goes. Um <laughs> and the reason That's the legal term well, doing let's a talk case. About doing, that a, doing a case about a guy <laughs> perhaps doing crimes. Yep. Uh,
0: I mean, it is a really it's a bold move, but they had This is in the bold strategy that.
1: cotton. Uh yeah. So, so let's quadrant. let's
0: explain to people a little bit about what the it is, strategy a, it is a
1: tactic was. that yeah. is done. Well, yeah, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it, it's funny because this there's a lot of eyeballs on this case. But what you often hear um, in opening remarks is when when the defense makes its arguments, you know, it, it will it will sometimes literally spell out for the jury. You know, the burden of proof is with the prosecutors. Right. They have right. to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. We could do nothing. We can sit over here and like barely be paying attention. And if, if they have if they leave a shred of doubt for you, the juror, uh, you have to acquit. And but
0: I mean it, not to get too uh back in my law school days. You're but sure. this is this is a men's rea thing, right? Where yeah. the whole deal is that the prosecution had to prove not only that he did certain things, but he had certain intent.
1: Yeah, yeah. W- w- without a doubt. And the bur- and, and like I say, the, the burden of proof is entirely on them. Um but it's not it's it it happens, but you don't often see people take that to it's actual like it's often a rhetorical device. Yeah, Those right. people often still present a case, even if they don't have to, right? Well, they haven't here. Uh, they said we're resting, um, and we did. There have been many analyses that sort of, uh, including ours, by Chuck Stanley, who's been all over the trial, um, just outside D.C. And he was basically he, he talked to attorneys who were basically like, yeah, you know, if if they thought that um, you know that the that the prosecution didn't quite do a good enough job. Then, Yeah, I mean, why not just let them? Why just well, why it's just also this thing, cook?
0: too, where it's like, um, if it really is all about or a big part of it about the intent here, yeah, it's uh, in some ways it puts the prosecution in a tough spot when they can't cross examine, yeah, anybody or yeah. like look at certain evidence that they presented. So, um, they, it, yeah, it just leaves them saying, like, yeah, believe us, here's all the facts, yeah, they he, had- he, he clearly had the intent, and by them not. Presenting yeah. Manafort on the stand or anything like that. Well,
1: yeah, they were never going to put Manafort on the stand, but now, like, I mean, they they don't have they they have not given the prosecution the opportunity to pull holes in their version of right. the story. Right, that's what it comes down to. It's like they think silence can sort of speak more volumes here. Yeah. It doesn't always bode well for a defense. You no. you'd like to make an active argument uh, in in an ideal scenario, um, but that's where we're at now. They did closing arguments uh, today uh, on Wednesday, as I said, um, and we'll see. Uh, Given how this has gone, I mean, it could be a short deliberation or a long deliberation. I don't know. Uh, But that's where we're at. Um, We'll possibly have more for you um, sort of coming up. But now I think we have uh, sort of more substantive things to talk about.
0: Are law firms letting down attorneys with disabilities? Law360 set out to answer that question, and one of our senior reporters, Brandon Lowry, is with us today to let us know what we found in our special report. Welcome to the show, Brandon.
3: Hi. Good to be here.
0: So, we're going to get into some of the individual stories that you have in your article about what's going on with some of the disabled attorneys in Big Law, but let's do a, a bit of an overview first. How is Big Law doing when it comes to people with disabilities?
3: Generally, not great. There has been a lot of movement in terms of uh, racial and gender diversity at law firms. Uh, a lot of discussion about it, uh, a lot of uh, data that it kind of shows some movement there. Um, but when it comes to people with disabilities, it is not really talked about as often. You see affinity groups for, uh, you know, all kinds of different things, but it seems some of the, the least common are uh, affinity groups for people with disabilities.
2: Yeah, you had some interesting, uh, you know, stats in in your story and and an interesting anecdote that there was only one firm, right, named to the uh, a list of of uh, you know organizations that, that that were taking proactive steps here.
3: Yes, the uh, Disability Equality Index, uh, which it has a benchmarking tool that looks at different businesses and gives them a score uh, based on their disability inclusion policies and practices. And fewer than a half dozen law firms even participated in this uh, survey. And there are more than 100 businesses that have actually not only uh, entered for this or, or, or participated in this, uh, but uh, were, were actually honored in you know the top uh, 20%. Uh, so, the only law firm to actually score in the top 20% was Step Toe, and uh, you know they have a lot of initiatives, and they they had they'd participated in this, and they're trying to uh, raise their their visibility in this community. But uh, you know it does say something that fewer than a half dozen law firms even. Uh, participated in this.
2: So it seems like firms, seems like what people told you is that firms are really not, not, this is not at the top of their list.
3: Yeah. And that's kind of, that's one of the frustrations. It's, it's not so much that big law is, you know, there are all these stories about big law actively discriminating or anything like that. It's, it's more that nobody's talking about it. And that in and of itself kind of has a chilling effect. You know, and and I think a lot of firms they might see themselves one way, but people in the disability community see them in a completely different way. I spoke with Angela Matney uh, at Loeb and Loeb, and she had uh, she had mentioned that a lot of firms are, are patting themselves on the back and or or see themselves as welcoming, but in reality they're uh, they're they're missing out on a whole lot of people.
0: I think that the immediate need is for firms to really realize that when they're talking about diversity um... That so often the word disability is is never even mentioned it's never even thought about um, so you know I'll see firms applaud their initiatives and rightly so you know to work to make things better for women attorneys um, attorneys of color attorneys uh... you know who are uh, LGBTQ, all of these things are great. We need we need that. But disability diversity is very real. And um, uh, there, I think, are still a good number of barriers for people with disabilities who want to enter the legal profession. So Brandon, we're really painting a picture here where it seems like law firms are really behind on um, figuring out how to even start talking about attorneys with disabilities. Why do you think that things have moved more quickly for things like gender equality or um, racial diversity?
3: Well, it just seems to have been the way that that law and and, and public discourse evolved in this country. Um, you have to remember that the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. And the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, so that's 26 years later. So we're still grappling with how to deal with racism and sexism in the workplace 54 years after the the Civil Rights Act. Um, And it's getting better, sure, but, you know, it's only been 28 years since the ADA came about. So we're just starting to see the first generation of professionals entering the workforce who were born with the ADA on their side and have the benefit of mentors and leaders who have been empowered by the ADA to lead full careers.
1: The other reason that you kind of get at in the story you wrote for us is that people aren't always very eager to disclose their disabilities, which is a big part of getting accommodations under the ADA. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, you know, a lot of disability rights advocates have told me that there are a lot that are that there's a concern about coming out to others about a disability. And Uh, You know, it might come as a surprise to a lot of people that people with disabilities use the term in the closet. Uh, And as a society, we kind of understand and accept that uh, people in the LGBTQ community uh, don't always feel comfortable coming out of the closet. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of people with disabilities who are also afraid of coming out. There are people with invisible disabilities that you might not notice at a glance. Uh, They're dealing with their disabilities in secret because they don't want to be labeled as uh, weak or unreliable or seen as, you know, the disabled person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so you could have people (laughs) at a desk next to you, at a cubicle next to you, working twice as hard to do the same stuff uh, because they are working in an environment or on a schedule that isn't designed to accommodate their needs.
2: And I have to think that that impulse is... Uh, exacerbated by the the, the setting of a, of a big law firm
3: right right I mean anxiety is, is common for anybody at a big law firm right you have you're, you're constantly having to work towards something else you know if you're an associate you want to become a partner you know if you're a partner you want to become an equity partner and you're always uh, having to worry about how you're being perceived and uh, your your work product and and there's just there's a lot of worry so if you add to that, you know, the idea of a disability and an added concern that if you come out with your disability, that you will be seen as unreliable, you know, or you will be seen as somebody who, you know, needs something extra or isn't fit to travel and, and you know, on, mm-hmm. on a big case. Or, and so there are, there are all these concerns that there's just going to be some somebody maybe trying to be helpful or, you know, and, and not right. seeing this as, as, uh, as discrimination, uh, will end up kind of, you know, making making things more difficult for them or uh, essentially putting a limitation on their career.
2: And then that lack of disclosure sort of reinforces the situation, right? That, that, that folks don't tell anyone and then no one does anything about anything.
3: Right. Out of sight, out of mind, right? right, right. You have uh, an attorney who uh, won't talk about their disability won't ask for an accommodation. So the law firm doesn't have to give an accommodation because it doesn't know, right? Mm-hmm. And because the law firm isn't giving an accommodation, uh, this is just not something that's on its radar. So it, it's kind of like this, uh, it, it's cyclical. You have, you know, law firms that don't talk about disabilities and don't make people with disabilities feel comfortable uh, or, or welcome or, um, you know, they don't trust that they will be treated fairly and as a result they don't come forward and because they don't come forward there's still no discussion about it and it just keeps on going.
0: So we've sort of taken the big picture view here and talked about some of the the issues going on but I know you actually talked to a lot of individuals and got their um, unique stories so can you tell us some of the highlights of your reporting on this like some of the anecdotes about how it really is for these people in big law.
3: Well, you know, I know we just listened to Angela Batney at Loeb & Loeb earlier, but I have to talk about her. Uh, she has two master's degrees, one in mathematics, another in rehabilitation counseling, and that's in addition to her law degree. Uh, I don't remember how to do law division, so I, even, a degree, <laughs> even a, an associate's degree in mathematics would impress the hell out of me. But, uh, you know, you add to that, she was raised in a tiny coal town in West Virginia, uh, her parents didn't finish high school traditionally. They got GEDs later on.
0: Well, I already uh, love her because I'm also a West Virginia native, so I feel, <laughs> I feel bonded to her in this story already.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, but so so take all that and then add to that that at Loeb, she's a data privacy expert. So she's one of the few lawyers who gets math and technology. So this is all impressive, Right. You know, add to that that she's a mother and she she has this high-powered career in dealing with these other issues as well, and then add to that that she's blind. And when she's called inspirational, <laughs> she she she's angry about this. She gets mad at yeah. the word inspirational uh, because people have told her that she's inspirational for hanging up a phone on its receiver or walking up a flight of stairs. exactly. like how cra- how crazy is that? You have all these qualifications, like all these impressive things that you've accomplished in your life and you're reduced to being impressive for walking up the stairs. Right. Yeah, right? that like, really
0: gives some some sense to people um, of of how infuriating this must be for many attorneys, that the smallest things are seen as inspirational, but then on the flip side, big law expects a lot out of people. Right. So yeah. even if they do have some challenges, um, they are reduced to sort of a token inspiration person or seen by other colleagues like they can't accomplish things. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and you know something she said in the uh, in the story, I think it's quoted, uh said that if you see somebody as inspirational for walking up the stairs, how likely are you to hire them? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 The implication
2: uh, is that other things beyond that are beyond your, your grasp. So it it yeah.
3: Yeah. And you know, something that I think that she kind of touches on and and a lot of people I've spoken with have gotten across is that you know, people with disabilities, they don't want pity or admiration or, you know, even in, in a lot of cases, they're not interested in a "quote unquote" cure. They just want to live their lives. Yeah, uh, they they want what anybody else wants. Uh, they have a different way of experiencing the world. But you know, and they might even have to take different paths to get to the same goals. But that's just how it is. It's not inspirational. It's not sad. It just is.
2: So I know you you spoke to a lot of people for the story. Was there anybody beyond Angela that um that that felt like you wanted to bring up?
3: Jeez, uh, I mean, there, there is a not Maytall uh, at Baker Hostetler. Um, and, you know, she's kind of the main character in the, uh, the first story in this uh, in this package. Uh, she uh, I met her in New York. She's one of those people who's just like she just comes off as so polished and confident and like you know, she could say three words to you and you just get that she's bright, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's and she'd like, she'd be totally intimidating if she weren't like, so just clearly friendly, you know? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and she's deaf. She, uh, you know, she, she was, she was telling me that, um, uh, a lot of people don't realize it immediately. She wears her, uh, her hair in a way that covers her, um, hearing aid and, and, and cochlear implant, uh, on her ears, you know, so, and, and she speaks pretty clearly. So you, you might not realize that she is hearing impaired unless uh, she told you. Uh, and, you know, what's, what's fascinating is, is that, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, being in the closet, she's, she's a leader in the uh, the, the deaf legal community. She right. helped found the uh, the deaf and hard of hearing uh, bar association. And, um, you know, but she's still, Wants to be in control of who knows and when, just because it is such a big, a big thing. You know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's still unsettling to her, even though she's definitely out, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, one thing you mentioned there is that she um, was part of a bar association for the deaf, and it seems like those kind of groups are really important for this community. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about? what's making the situation better. It seems like mentorship and visibility with groups like that are really important.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, as you pointed out in the story, the uh, National Association of Attorneys with Disabilities is kind of falling apart. And that was meant to be the um, all-inclusive, you know, major group for attorneys with disabilities that includes, you know, whether you have some kind of a sensory disability or uh, mobility disability or mental uh, learning, what any, anything. It's, it's meant to be all-inclusive, right? So um, as the story pointed out, the National Association of Attorneys with Disabilities has basically fallen, fallen apart. And there are some smaller organizations or more specific organizations that are kind of uh, broken down either regionally or by specific disability uh, that have kind of sprung up. And people are able to connect through these organizations, uh, and not uh, her her uh, deaf and hard of hearing bar association uh, now has more people than the, uh, the the national more inclusive organization ever had. And uh, you know what, what's happening is, is it's allowing people to to network and connect with others and find mentors and um, you know exchange tips, things like that. Well,
2: and, and um, you mentioned in your story a, a sort of a personal anecdote of, of, of how Anat has now taken on the, the mantle of, of a mentorship and that she's working with, with other people, right, on a, sort of an individual basis.
3: Yes. Well, there's an attorney at Baker Hostetler named Michael Sabella who arrived at the firm after Anat, um, and maybe even because of Anat. Uh, he had heard through a mutual friend uh, who's also hearing impaired that uh, Anat was working at Baker Hostetler. And so when he applied, he kind of, uh, he had this in mind. He felt like, okay, well, this firm kind of gets it or this firm at least, you know, has has allowed somebody like me to be successful. So he gets there and he goes into interview and he tells them straight up at the, uh, during the interview that he is both hearing impaired and gay and, you know, that, that is the power that just having somebody there before you can, uh, can, can offer. So basically, uh, you know, since then, they've become friends and they, they talk about things. And in a way, he says uh, not is mentoring him or, or is kind of a mentor to him. Uh, but uh, really, she was kind of the, uh, <laughs> in, in a sense, she was a, a canary in the coal mine, right? Like she, she thrived there and others saw that. And now there is this this feeling that, okay, this is this could be a safe place.
0: Thanks for coming on the show today, brandon and and telling us some of these stories about the trailblazers in this area. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Continuing our look at disability inclusion in the legal industry with our next guest, Senior Reporter Erin Coe. Erin joins us to talk about changes in how law firms are handling issues around mental health. Welcome to the show, Erin.
4: Glad to be here.
0: So, earlier we heard from our colleague Brandon Lowry about the overall picture for disabled attorneys in big law, but you wrote about a very specific subset of people, those that are facing um, mental health issues. Can you tell us a bit more about how the challenges for those attorneys are different from those with physical disabilities? Sure.
4: So my story focused on illnesses that sometimes are considered invisible disabilities. For many, that might mean depression or anxiety, but it could also mean conditions like bipolar disorder, attention deficit disorder, or schizophrenia. And these conditions uh, may not be apparent but they can definitely have debilitating effects on people. So, when you're working at a place like Big Law, uh, where there are really long hours and the constant competition in the industry um, just doesn't, doesn't stop, that could sometimes make lawyer symptoms even worse.
2: So, we heard from Brandon about the difficulty of um, folks disclosing disabilities in the, in the law firm setting. Um, do we have a sense of, of just how prevalent mental health issues are in the legal sector?
4: Yeah, there have been some recent studies, um, particularly in 2016, that I think were the most comprehensive studies. One was done by the ABA and the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation in 2016. And it found that 28% of lawyers have some level of depression. And that's actually much higher than the broader population in the U.S., where less than 7% of U.S. adults are dealing with depression.
0: Wow, that's a big difference.
4: Yeah. And actually, there was another study done by, um, uh, it surveyed a number of law students, I think about uh, over 3,000, and it found that 17% of them were dealing with depression. So you can see that it's quite a jump compared to the broader population.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's, you get into sort of what whether people were were carrying this with them before, if like you you were saying before, it's probably accentuated by pressures of the job. But one thing that we know from the data you've presented there is that there's plenty of attorneys and perhaps future attorneys dealing with stuff like this. Um, But when it comes to accommodations that they are legally entitled to under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you're required to disclose your condition under that law. Um, But what we've been talking about here is that there's a lot of Uh, stigma around this, especially within the big law context. Can you talk about that a little bit?
4: So it's been incredibly challenging for lawyers to come forward and disclose they have a mental health condition that they may need an accommodation for. And one source that the American Bar Association was mentioning to me, that at certain firms, it doesn't really feel like you even have an option um, to to disclose that. Because if you say, oh, um, you know, I want to let you know I have you know, depression, severe depression, or whatever it is, uh, that might be the end of their career. And he actually called it the kiss of death (laughs) at some firms. And, um, you know, uh, firms are, you know, they're going to be thinking about their clients. And Mm -hmm. um, there's a stigma sometimes still around dealing with somebody who may be having some difficulties at the moment managing a mental illness.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you can see how that can kind of take root. I mean, there are stigma like that that exists in lots of contexts, but especially in the big law sure. context where, it, you know, often this stuff is very adversarial. It's very high stakes. It's almost a competition. You know, you can see how it, it, it would not create in a lot of contexts, a very open sort of environment to just be plain spoken about stuff like that.
4: Not a, yeah, exactly. There's plenty of reasons to keep things quiet um, on the attorney's end. And I mean, we're talking about an industry where, Uh, lawyers are closely scrutinized over and over again. Their competence, their fitness, it's being studied and judged by bar examiners, by attorneys at their own firm, opposing counsel, clients, judges, everybody's watching them and uh, people want to guard as much. um, They want to protect their professional reputation. That's, that's everything. That's their career. And if they feel like disclosing that could undermine their reputation or just throw it under the bus altogether. Then they're going to guard against that and not disclose. Mm-hmm. It just makes it harder.
0: This all sounds pretty terrible, Erin. But your story actually um, also focused on how some of the stigma is starting to fade in in the legal industry. So, what exactly is happening now, and and what can people look to with a little bit of hope about this situation?
4: Yeah, I was really happy to dig into this issue and see that there are signs that the legal industry is changing. And also just seeing that there are firms that are taking more proactive steps. Um, I talked to Hogan Levels and Egan Gump, and both of them actually offer on-site mental health counseling services. Um, Hogan Levels started offering those services back in 2016 in its D.C. and New York offices, but it's also expanded those services to other offices as well, Baltimore, Denver. And I think it's actually looking at Louisville, Kentucky next, um, some of their busier offices. That's a really proactive
0: thing to do because lawyers are in their offices more or less all the time. So it's bringing the services right to them. Right. Yeah.
4: And I think it's just letting attorneys know that this is something that law firms are starting to take seriously and acknowledge, which I think is a really huge big step and definitely something that a lot of firms have not done. So this is this is really a big move, I think.
0: So you also interviewed several attorneys who were open about their mental health issues. What did they have to say about how things have changed in, in the legal landscape? Well I think
4: that it's the stigma isn't it, it's not gone away. It's not disappearing overnight. It's something that's going to take a lot of time. But I think that just there is just these feelings that there is a change going on, and they want to be part of that. And I think that because they had some difficulties uh, coming out with whatever mental health condition they had, they want to make it easier for the people that are coming up later. So it's not so hard for them. Uh, One of the people I talked to was a lawyer named Joseph Milowick. He's a partner at Quinn Emanuel. And he decided to come out about his depression that he's been dealing with for about 10 years, and he came out with this, his depression this year. And he's hoping that um, he can help other attorneys, especially those who are young, they're starting out, they may not exactly realize what what's going on with them right now. I mean, depression, some of the symptoms you may not realize that it is depression. It could be <laughs> you don't know mm-hmm. what. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, uncertainty and just fear of what what's going on with me right now, and um, y- you feel pressure to uh, keep that to yourself. And he's trying to kind of open <laughs> open that situation up so people aren't so afraid to feel like if they disclose something like this that that's it for their career. Yeah. And he actually started an online support group called the No Time Group. Yeah, oh.
0: we've talked a lot on this show in a lot of context about diversity issues, about how representation is very important. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is really similar where um, as people speak out, the younger attorneys can see that they maybe can speak out too because – something terrible hasn't happened to someone else's career. It's but-
1: significant, too, when it comes from like a leadership uh, perspective, too. Like I mean, like we're talking about this, this Quinn Emanuel attorney, it sort of gives, like like you say, can open the door.
2: Well, and like anything else that we've talked about with trying to change the way that law firms work, it, it's, it, it needs more than just a policy. It needs buy-in from everybody. It takes, it takes, it, it's the, the real question is whether or not it changes the status quo, whether it changes the practice versus mm-hmm. what, what the policy is.
4: Yeah, I I mean, I'm thinking with some of these law firms taking the steps that they're taking and some of the lawyers coming out now, some in higher positions, that this really is showing that there is a shift in the legal industry and it's for the better.
0: Erin, thanks for coming to talk about this. This is a really big issue and I'm glad to see that some daylight's being brought to it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm glad we did a good overview today with our show of our disability report. But I want to let all the listeners know that there's a lot more that we've covered. Check out law360.com for, for more stories about that. And I also want to thank my co host for being with me, Bill.
2: See you again next week, guys. And
0: Alex. Thanks. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, and our special guests this week, Brandon Lowry and Aaron Coe. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you like our show, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. Thanks, and join us again next week.